feels like it's directional, like you don't get to decide it. It just happens to you. Everything either feels like just pure faith without any, or everything feels like pure superstition. Like neither of them are kind of good enough for me. If there was, if I was able to formulate some sort of equation where I could prevent things happening, I would do it probably. These types of events intersect with a particular feature of human psychology, which is that we really want explanations for things. These things can happen to us and we can experience them, but there might be something that ties those actions together, that rules out luck. There's some other thing that causes these things to happen. If you really stop and spend some time thinking about just how much of your life you end up going through with no control whatsoever of what's happening to you, it's frightening. Either we avoid thinking about it, if at all possible, or we try and create narratives and explanations and stories that help us reinforce the illusion of control. It's a sense now of that I've, ex I've experienced something. Without having experienced it, you can't understand it. It attracts our attention because it's difficult to weave into the narrative of our lives. this in words, I don't know. Welcome to Unlock, a podcast by the Bad Vibes Club, commissioned by Rhubarber. You can find more information about the Bad Vibes Club project at badvibesclub.co.uk. My name is Matthew DeCur St. Girodo and I'm your host. We just heard the Rhubarber Choir singing from the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein's book Tractatus Logicus Philosophicus and we'll return to them throughout the show for more musical arrangements from the king of logical mysticism. So from the title you might have guessed that the podcast has something to do with luck but unluck is luck for a world that doesn't believe in luck anymore. If unluck isn't bad and isn't good then is it luck at all? Rather, are we not in the realm of pure chance? But then, if stuff just happens randomly through chance, what about cause and effect? Surely everything is caused by another thing. So then we have a kind of determinism, where everything happens for a reason. But if everything happens for a reason, then why don't we seem to be able to know what the reason is, or to predict the things that will happen to us? And that brings us back to the idea of luck again. Things happen to some people and not to others. This whole series of questions, interlocking and somehow unpickable, make up the idea of unluck, a concept that binds together people, objects, events, magic, science, faith and superstition, the individual, the universal, the anecdotal and the abstract. In the podcast, we'll hear from the psychologist Adam Moore from Edinburgh University, who will try and explain our reliance on ideas of luck, fate and destiny. And we'll hear from four people who have experienced particularly acute cases of unluck and whose reaction to those events has changed the way they think. We'll also hear music by Jenny Moore, written in response to the story of one of those four, Stuart Bell. And so, let's hear from Stu first. I met Stu through a friend who had told me that he'd been hit by lightning, been in a plane crash... And broken numerous bones. Thirteen as it happened. 
Me and Stu had a long chat at my studio. Weirdly, the day that I'd arranged to meet him, there had been a freak storm, pulling trees down all over London and creating chaos on public transport. But even though he'd once been hit by lightning, Stu said that the storm hadn't bothered him at all. He said he never worried about bad things happening, he just expected them to happen. Let's hear Stu talking about the lightning strike, which took place in Spain, where Stu and his brother grew up as kids. In the south of Spain, it gets very hot and very dry. And pretty much every summer you get forest fires. Nine times out of ten, they're, um, they're started by storms and lightning. Me and my brother were up in the hills behind our house. It just started chucking it down with rain, like absolutely chucking it. Pretty much like you would imagine in a film, you know, just absolute sheet rain right from, from nothing. We could see fires starting around, because the hills are kind of, they go, you know, as you'd imagine, rolling hills, they go behind each other. So you could see glows of small fires and we were like, we should probably not stick around for much longer, but we did stick around for a little bit longer. Pretty much as we decided to leave, well, the way I, the way I perceive it is an explosion. Just to me, it felt like an explosion at that moment, but it, it transpired, it was, it was lightning that hit a bush, which I was a foot away from. Pretty much the last thing I remember for a few minutes, not long, the next thing I remember is um, I was about six feet away from where the bush was. I didn't know, I had no idea what was going on. When I woke up, I was deaf. Um, and my brother was sort of frantically shaking, shaking me. Um, and I remember the sensation of being extremely hot as well. He ran off and, he ran off and got one of our neighbours and uh, took, me to, took me to hospital, still completely deaf. I knew there was something, like something had happened, but I just, I just didn't know what it was. But uh, the na- in the neighbour's car, he wrote, he wrote lightning down in his phonetic English. <laughs> he speaks English, but he was a lot younger than me when we moved there. So right, right. His, his written English is not the best in the world. So how did he spell lightning? <laughs> how did he spell it? Yeah. L-I-T-N-E-N, something like that. And you could see where it hit. It was, it was on my leg. There was a slight singeing on my shorts. We just got taken to hospital and well, not there for very long actually. It was essentially a burn. I mean, that's, that's the injury, but it took about two weeks, something like that, for the hearing to come back. And uh, even after that, it was still a pretty high pitch ringing, just constant high pitch ringing. And that lasted another month or so. But to be honest, it wasn't the first time that anything bad had happened. You know, I've broken 13 bones <laughs> in my body throughout my life. Um, uh, so how did you begin to think about the event after it happened? So I guess I'm wondering how you began to process it. Yeah, I've thought about that quite a lot, only because there have been so many things since then and a couple of things before then. You know, by that age, I'd broken my leg and I'd broken both my arms in separate incidents. And uh, my mum had passed away in a car crash um, a few years before in 1987. So over time, it just became another thing to add to the collection, you know, and there's been lots of things since then as well. So I don't know how other people deal with it. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I just put it on the pile, really. Uh, we were still in a lot of grief, obviously, because it's a mum's thing. But yeah, it just it just became another thing. So, something that I thought about b- between being a kid and now is is all the things that nearly happened, and it starts to change. You know, if you use that as a filter, your perception of what good luck and bad luck is kind of it, they don't really exist. You know, there's just there's just planes of existence. You know, those things happen, and then you deal with it. There he was, just an average boy. Walking down the street, walking through the hills Going over that internal monologue Some cosmic ploy when Zap! Bang! Woo! What was that? He was was hot, he was really hot, like extremely hot Whop! Bang! Woo! He heard the thunder He felt the lightning through his veins The voltage called his name Thirteen broken bones, collecting 
Thirteen broken bones. Oh yeah. Thirteen broken bones. Yes, sir. Thirteen broken bones. That was the first of four songs that Jenny Moore has written for the Unluck podcast about the strange events of Stuart Bell's life. As you heard Stu mention, he has had a few more incidents of unluck over the years, so we'll come back to him later. But let's get straight on to the next example of unluck from Will Evans. Apologies for the quality of this recording. Will was speaking at a dinner event I organised a few years ago at Rhubarba, so you can hear people eating while they listen to him tell his story. In this recording, we hear him describe what he referred to in a later conversation as the accident. Okay, so uh, I was stabbed. Um, <laughs> 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 right, about social embarrassment, not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was stabbed. So this is the, the story, I guess, of that incident. So I must have been 21. I was an undergraduate at Southampton University and I had a small part-time job with my brother who was a hairdresser and I used to do all the geeky things in the office for him. Being a big music fan, something that I would always do when I made some money is go and buy records. So I went up to HMV, which was at the other side, the other end of the high street. This broad daylight, um, it was January, still light and everything. So, and I was actually coming back to the salon to pick something up, I can't remember. But as I was walking down the high street, I just felt this bang on my shoulder. That was enough to get my attention, so I turned around, and it was at that point I saw this large framed chap then punched me in the face, kind of around the lower nose and teeth area, which if you've been punched in the face is one of the worst places to get punched. And that, that caused me to, to bend over, you know, to kind of fold in half. And then he kicked me in the face, um, just under the jaw. So I kind of bit my lip as well. And this all happened in, you know, seconds. The adrenaline by that point must have been pumping enough that I didn't go to the ground. I was just, you know, I stood upright again and, and distanced myself from him. So I remember pushing him away. Um, now what I thought in that split second was, okay, I'm being mucked. Um, but I just remember he kept, kept coming at me, swinging for me. And so I spent what must have been about a minute pushing him away and walking backwards and it, he got to the middle of the road and stopped and he seemed to kind of disengage and lose interest just all of a sudden just turned his attention to the left and walked off and I saw you know a few people that were in my immediate vicinity who had stopped and, and were flustered so I um, I realised oh, that was a bit of a scene and it actually went back to that embarrassment thing where you just immediately think, oh bloody hell, I hope I just didn't get an absolute kick in in front of all these dangers. It's only until then that a woman who I remember engaging with as I was walking the moment it happened, she said, oh god, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I don't know what that was about. And she said, yeah, but you're, you know, you've been stabbed. And it was at that point I had no idea about the stabbing, so th- this must have been two or three minutes later. And I, I, I remember not believing her, and she said, no, look, look at you, you've been stabbed. And I just looked down, and that was the moment that I remember probably the clearest of most, that it was just a pool of blood. So it was then that I thought, okay, this is really serious. The first thing I did was go up to the bus stop and say, hi, I don't know if you saw that, but I've been stabbed and I need some help. 
And it was at that point that I realised that it's going to be difficult because half the bus stop left. So I resorted to going to a restaurant. Hi, I really need some help. I'm bleeding all over the place. I've just been stabbed. People left the restaurant. And it just seemed like this battle where nobody was going to help me out. And I, I understand it in hindsight. And then I approached the bar, the, the girl behind the bar and said, you know, look, you heard that, I'm going to need some help. And she just looked at me and said, well, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> I said, well, let's start by calling an ambulance. Because <laughs> 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 at that point, and this, this is a really nice little story, the, the chef came out of the restaurant, he had food, and he'd seen that these people had just legged it out of the restaurant, saw me, and he said, what, what's happened? And I said, I've just been stabbed. He just ditched his food, you know, threw it to his left, and just took his overalls off, and just ran right to me. And he was like, got an ambulance on the way, it's, it's all going to be okay. And it was by that point that I'd got into kind of severe blood loss. Mm. So I was going into... You know, my vision was starting to go. Then another comedic moment, a do-gooder who had seen the incident decided at that point to write in and go, oh, it's all right, it's okay, it's okay, I've got the knife. <laughs> <laughs> I went to hospital, they did lots of checks. I was in intensive care for about six hours. It turned out I was very, very lucky. The, the chap stabbed me, it hit my shoulder, and then went across along my back rather than through. So it's purely a muscle-based injury. Will there, raising the spectre of unluck, how an event could be both bad luck, like getting stabbed, and good luck, such as miraculously not sustaining serious injury, at the same time? Next up, we're going to hear from Helen Limon. She was also speaking at the rhubarb dinner about a life-changing event on an aeroplane. Okay, so I was um, 20 and I was flying from um, uh, Singapore to Malaya. When we were flying from Singapore to Melbourne, we flew, I was on the Singapore Airlines flight, we flew through volcanic ash through an active volcano. Um, and of course the engines caught fire. Oh my God. And, um, <laughs> And planes can't fly very well when their engines are on fire. <laughs> so the cabin filled up with smoke. Only a week before a British Airways flight had flown through it and had exactly the same thing had happened. So it seemed a bit unlikely that the same thing would happen again, but I, I'm not sure that airlines really communicate very well with each other. I was quite sure that I was very likely to die because I was sitting by the emergency exit so I could see the wings were on fire. And I had the cabin crew sitting in front of me praying and I'm, you know, that's not a metaphor, they were praying. And I can remember the cabin crew saying to one of the guys, to me, you seem unnaturally calm. I felt more bizarrely, more in control of who I was, more certain, more focused, with a much stronger sense of myself than at any other time. I, d I just felt completely self-contained and that all this other stuff was going on around me but it almost didn't have anything to do with me and I think my overriding sense was it's a shame I won't ever be able to tell anybody how weird this feels because I'll be dead um, when I thought we were going to die I was going to die because it took quite a long time for switching on and off the engine so there's quite a long time to think about dying um, and then not dying but uh, I think something happened to me in those moments 
that I think has governed and directed the way that I approach being ever since. And it, I think the effects come and go a little bit. While, you know, plain incidents do happen, the impact has been, um, I would say, very fundamental to the way that I approach everything that I've done since then. Coincidences seem to be much more common for me in the few years after that happened. And I don't know whether it was just because I had a heightened sense of coincidence or just a delusional sense of self-importance. <laughs> It felt to me afterwards that I'd moved into a bit of a space, whether just in my head or in a kind of externalisation reality, where there was an obligation on me to live very deliberately. Not very nice. I mean, I think I was very selfish. It made me incredibly selfish. Everything else fell away. I think it left me with the sense that you can do whatever you want to do, so long as you're prepared for the consequences of making that decision. There's a sense that everything is available to you. I sometimes think that it was a really good thing that happened. Sometimes I think it's a really bad thing that happened, <laughs> because I think there's a certain kind of coldness that, that comes with that. OK, so this is the last story. When I asked Jenny Moore if she'd contribute to this podcast by writing some songs about the fate and fortunes of Stuart Bell, she mentioned that she'd had her own brush with unluck. What Jenny experienced is a lot more common than, say, being hit by lightning or being in a plane crash, but it still made a big impact on her life and the way she thinks. To me, that seems to be what links these stories together, the way they are told as singular, unpredictable and unexplainable events. So... First, Jenny tells us about what happened to her and her then-boyfriend, Conrad, and then she explains a weird twist to the story and how it made her reflect on what happened. Uh, so we were going to a Halloween party. We were cycling and we were with another friend. And, of course, we were all in costume and we decided to go kind of the back routes. Went through this road, which I'd never been through before. But anyways, it was kind of immediately clear that some sort of weird vibe was going on. So there was like cars parked on either side of the road. So me and my friend Charlotte came around the corner and pieces of fruit started to fly from behind the cars. Plums or lychees or something. Like something which I remember thinking like, this is exotic for just wasting. And then some kids, which I swear looked about 13 years old, kind of shouting things. Uh, and also throwing these little bits and stuff at us. And my friend, of course, was like, excuse me, that is very dangerous, and you should stop that right now. So then this kind of choreography started happening where as soon as we addressed them, then, like, the next set of kids who were, like, a little bit taller came from the next bunch of cars and sort of came out and started to push us around. So Conrad comes around the corner because he was riding a bit behind us and obviously just saw a bunch of what he thought were like 12-year-old boys trying to rob our bikes or something. And just without even thinking, just sort of shouted like, hey, fuck off, or what's going on? Like, get the fuck out of here. Which then the next cars after were like the adults <laughs> who rose up from behind that set of cars. I, I guess at this point there was like 15 kids sort of on the street and three of us that just went woof and attacked Conrad. I mean, I just have this memory of being kind of down the road and watching like a huge circle just basically kick the shit out of him. And then I had this superhuman moment where I was like, I don't really know what to do. So I will just run as fast as I can at this huge group of insane, violent people. <laughs> it ended up that we were both on the ground having shots taken at us by this group of kids until I sort of yelled enough at the guy who was obviously in charge. Is this it then? Do you want to just kick us until we die? 
because you don't even like we don't even mean anything to you. Uh, somehow that's that sort of worked. And then he stopped. Somehow, <clears throat> I guess because we were trying to run away at the same time as being on the ground, like kind of made our way to the main road. He sort of gave the cue and they all ran away with like our bikes and phones and stuff like that. So my friend Charlotte, who was there, ran basically into the road, stopped a bus. Conrad got up, of course, in like total shock, just got up, like his whole kind of face was bleeding. I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. (laughs) Stumbled around and we were like, you're not fine. No one's fine, sit down. So of course, remember it was Halloween. So this is the moment where you remember we were in costume. So Charlotte, who stopped the bus, was dressed as Amy Winehouse. And... (laughs) stopped the bus, kind of like waving in the street, and a few, I think probably about five, came off the bus, where we were right at the back door, and of course Conrad's face was just bleeding everywhere, and Charlotte was standing there waving her arms, and they came off and they're like, whoa, sick costume, (laughs) for maybe three seconds. But luckily one of them lived in the houses right on the street there. Cops arrived really, really quickly, super weird as well so an ambulance came and the police came and then heard this like this barking this of loads of dogs and the police officer who was already acting very weird in his bulletproof vest he heard that i was i was in the middle of talking and then he kind of looked up really dramatically and he said release the hounds boys i am not kidding you It's all kind of, I don't know what to believe about what actually happened and what I've kind of made up because of the feeling that you have in that situation. But um, there was dogs barking and supposedly they were chasing the kids through gardens around the the neighborhood. I mean, what I found out later, um, about six months later, um, I got a letter in the post from a TV station saying, this is just to inform you that on this date, which was the date that I received the letter, your case from 31st of October 2008 will be featured on Cops with Cameras. <laughs> so I don't know if after the fact I've made up this kind of super cop drama, but I do remember thinking, that dickhead, he was on TV! Like, there was somebody with a camera somewhere that I didn't see. I always wonder, like, if that letter and that knowledge of that was, like, the catalyst of me understanding what had happened. I mean, Conrad had surgery in his face afterwards. Like, he has a metal plate that holds his eye in place. So there was just all this kind of, like, getting better and trying to, like, not be freaked out on the street just in general. But, like, I think that that moment made me see this random, crazy human activity that goes on. Somehow the TV show made it just... My mind go... (laughs) Made my mind kind of go crazy about how humans, like, order ourselves in the world but like then I felt really stupid because I was like yeah there's been like all those other people on cops with cameras have also been free tv content but I've never obviously never thought about them until now It's, it's in a way it's not so weird it's like this is what happens in the world but now I'm on tv as one of those people that was Jenny Moore talking about her moment of unlock At the end of that piece, we heard Jenny describe how she received a letter from a TV production company telling her that the police response to her violent attack had been filmed and will now be shown on Cops With Cameras. The feeling she experienced of realising that so many other people had also been filmed at their lowest points in order for Cops With Cameras to exist was something that, though particularly acute in this case, I think connects all the different stories. On the one hand, each of the stories describes a completely unique event totally unpredictable for the person experiencing it and with life-changing consequences. 
But on the other hand, each of these events, a lightning strike, a random attack by someone suffering a psychotic episode, a plane's engine catching a light and a violent mugging, has happened many times before to countless people across the world. The knowledge gained through experiencing one of these events is both completely embodied based on what it feels like to be in that exact situation at that exact time, and totally abstract, related to your knowledge of being part of a group of people who have experienced things outside the realms of everyday life. By experiencing unluck, you become special and unique, and you are given a story that no one else can tell, but you also become a number, part of a group of necessary anomalies that prove the statistical probability of certain events. Let's go back to Stu now. He'd been telling me about his various broken bone stories. I won't play you any of them. Some of the incidents were the product of chance, but, and I'm sure Stu wouldn't mind me saying this, most of them seem to involve him doing something stupid while drunk. Anyway, the point still remains that 13 bones is a lot of bones to break, but then he mentioned that he'd once been hit by a car, so I asked him to tell me about that. Went across the road by a big shopping centre in, in the centre of Nottingham where I, where I live, uh, and they used to use it as like a boy racer thing. And uh, I just crossed the roads, there was no one there, and this guy came flying around the corner and ran under me, and I was fine. Nothing happened at all. I just rolled over, uh, and he was he was flying past. So I'm not really sure how that how that worked out. I mean, I got grazed, but nothing nothing broke, you know. But then I've, I've fallen over wheelie bins and broke two ribs, and it kind of makes you think about what bad luck is and what. Um, She lands two feet on the floor. He says, no injuries, I'm actually fine. But how do you quantify that kind of thing? And, and just carries on his way. Collecting broken bones. If it weren't for bad luck, you'd have um, no luck at all. The events of the future. Cannot be inferred from those of the present. Superstition. That was the choir again, reminding us of what the philosopher Wittgenstein thought about the causal nexus. Causality is the idea of things having a cause and an effect. And we use our expectation that one thing will cause another every single day. It's not some abstract philosophical concept, but a basic assumption we make about the world. If we couldn't trust that things tomorrow will be similar to things today, then we'd never be able to do anything. How could you get to work if there was no way to predict how long the journey might take? How would we clean our teeth if we couldn't be sure that water came out of the taps when we turned the handle? And why would you even get up in the mornings if you weren't sure that the sun would rise? The Wittgenstein quote that the choir was singing goes like this. 
the events of the future cannot be inferred from those of the present. Superstition is the belief in the causal nexus. Wittgenstein is saying two things here. The first is that when you really think about the way we experience the world, we don't have any direct proof that things in the future are caused by things in the past and the present. But we have to assume things in the future will happen in a similar way to things in the past. We make this assumption every day about a myriad of different things. Our belief that we can predict the future is a kind of superstition, supported by our experiences, but not provable through reason. But by implication, he's also telling us that superstition isn't necessarily a bad thing. We seem to do pretty well at predicting things by believing in causality. So perhaps superstition is not opposed to more logical forms of knowledge, but is paired with them, allowing us to trust what feels right, even when we can't prove it. I guess from this we can draw a kind of common sense conclusion, which is that we should be happy that we have a system that allows us to make a guess at what the future might bring. But we shouldn't be surprised when things don't turn out the way we thought they would. All the people we've heard from in the podcast so far have had that conclusion proved to them by the events they've experienced. These events were unpredictable. They were blips in the smooth passage of time from the past to the future, and they challenged the possibility of a causal explanation. The knowledge gained by our speakers could be seen as a negative kind of knowledge, an understanding that things won't always go as expected. It's interesting that Wittgenstein compared the belief in causality to a superstition, because J.G. Fraser's book, The Golden Bough, published in 1890, also makes this comparison. Fraser's book is an examination of magic, superstition and shamanism in, quote-unquote, primitive cultures, whether that was in other countries when Fraser was writing the book, or in pre-modern cultures in Britain before Fraser was alive. The book is beautifully written, and it would be anachronistic to judge it on the basis of today's ethical standards, but it's very much of its time, essentially trying to explain other cultures in terms of mistakes and misapplications of reason. Here's a quote from the chapter on magic. If we analyse the principles of thought on which magic is based, they will probably be found to resolve themselves into two. First, that like produces like, or that an effect resembles its cause, and second, that things which have once been in contact with each other continue to act on each other at a distance after the physical contact has been severed. Magic's two great principles turn out to be merely two different misapplications of the association of ideas. The association of ideas by similarity and the association of ideas by contiguity. The last word from that quote was contiguity. Contiguity means proximity in space or time. When Wittgenstein says that we don't have any direct proof of causality, he's referring to the idea that we can never directly observe the connection between cause and effect. The thing we actually observe is just contiguity. To use a famous example from philosophy, when we watch a queue knock a snooker ball into a pocket, it's easy to assume that we have observed one event causing another. But on closer inspection, it appears that we've experienced two separate events happening one after the other. We can reasonably say that these events are contiguous because they happen very close together in time and space. But we can never truly assert that one event caused the other, however many times we watch a game of snooker that supports our assumptions. Here's another quote from J.G. Fraser. The analogy between the magical and the scientific conceptions of the world is close. In both of them, the succession of events is perfectly regular and certain, being determined by immutable laws, the operation of which can be foreseen and calculated precisely. Magic is a misapplication of ideas, but the correct application of those same ideas leads us to scientific thought, and so magic and science are related, even if, for J.G. Fraser, they are also opposed. For me, magic and science are both worldviews informed by our capacity for pattern making. Once we detect a link between things that are contiguous, 
it suits us to see them as caused by each other. And while magic believes it can change the future, and science believes it can predict it, our everyday thinking relies on a bit of both. Unluck is what challenges that way of thinking. It clears away the fuzzy expectation that things will always make sense, and that tomorrow will be just like today. All the people who have experienced unluck have had to change the way they think to accommodate these events within their lives. I spoke to Dr. Adam Moore from the psychology department of Edinburgh University about different ways of thinking about chance events. Apparently there's a word for all these different ways of thinking that seem to help us get by, but start to break down when you examine them. They are called heuristics. A heuristic is um, sort of like a rule of thumb. It's a cognitive labor-saving strategy that we use, um, and we have lots of them. Um, and so one of the ones called take the best, which is a very simple decision rule, which is whatever the things are that you're trying to decide between, just figure out which aspect of it is the most important to you, and then take the one that has the best value on that aspect. So if, you, if you're trying to decide on what car to buy, and price is not the most important thing to you, but fuel efficiency is, then look at your options and just take the one with the highest gas mileage and just don't even worry about any of the other information. And what they've been able to show is that for certain kinds of problems, that kind of very fast, heuristic, quick, intuitive decision-making can actually not only save you time and mental effort, but can get you better results than going through every possible configuration of options and mapping down all the price to enjoyment ratios and all the sort of detailed analysis that an economist would like to think that people will go through. The fact that we generally rely on heuristics like this doesn't mean that we can't reason in a much more sophisticated fashion. Right? We can, and we do, um, when we're motivated to, or when we think we should be doing it. Um, but for most of the problems that we encounter in our daily lives, we rely on heuristics because they're good enough. And that's kind of the key is that while reasoning might get us to a more complete or more sophisticated, ultimately by some measurable standard, better result or better answer, um, most of the time we just need to satisfice, right? We just need to get some result that's good enough. And heuristics are really good for that. So that seems to make sense, right? What Wittgenstein seems to be saying is that our trust in causality is a heuristic that tells us that events are always somehow explainable. It's a quick way of understanding the events that are within the range of our everyday experience. Something happens to us, and we assume it was caused by something else, and that it somehow fits into our life. Things that happen are related by cause and effect, and they have a meaning. This is a pretty good rule of thumb for most of our experiences, but what about when we experience unluck, an unlikely event, like being struck by lightning or being involved in a plane crash? These types of events intersect with a particular feature of human psychology, which is that we really want explanations for things. We experience a kind of a psychological anxiety when we don't have an explanation for something. And we will seek out to try and create explanations for events that occur to us. And moreover, we want those explanations to mesh really well with all of our other experiences in our life events, right? So we'll attempt to construct an explanation for things that happen to us. But for these unpredictable, very low probability, but very very high impact life-changing events, there just really isn't a good explanation, right? You can't, I mean, the best explanation you can say is, Mah, bad luck, <laughs> you know, there's just no other thing. And I think that's one of the appeals to the idea of, of luck is that it kind of serves as an explanation that weaves things into your life in a way that kind of reassures your emotions a little bit. So when we experience a very unlikely event, we still have to try and make sense of it in order to give it meaning and weave it into the story of our lives. Of all the people I spoke to for this podcast, it seemed like Stu had found it the hardest to come to a satisfactory conclusion about the events that he'd experienced. I guess having so many unlikely events happen to you was just hard to make sense of. Losing his mum in a car crash, the lightning strike, the broken bones. 
Let's hear from Sue again about the other unlikely event that he'd experienced. He was limited in what he could say because of an ongoing legal dispute with the airline, but here he describes being involved in a plane crash. It was a plane in Thailand um, that I was on. It was going from Bangkok to Chiang Mai in the north. The plane's landing gear didn't open properly. They both opened, but one of them didn't open full, and when we landed, it pinged shut, and uh, so it just basically skidded into the forest at the end of the runway. It skidded into there and, and caught fire, and then all the people like, were all over the place. It was, there was no, no injuries. Like, I was fine. The longest time was was um, coming to a halt. I remember that. Uh, <laughs> felt forever. Um, uh, <laughs> You can't see in front of you. You can, yeah. only, see out, you can only see out the side. Uh, I really didn't know where we were headed. You know, um, from when the plane lands, there's still a lot of runway. They leave a lot of runway for accidents, basically. We went off the end of the runway and into the trees. That's that's how it stopped. He's just going on a holiday ride in the tube with a takeaway. Oh, he's coming up to the runway. Zoom, bang, shang, the plane came down. Zoom, bang, crash, the plane came down. Stopped by the trees at the end of the runway. In our conversations, Stu avoided describing the events in his life in terms of luck. But the idea seemed to haunt the things he spoke about. It was as though, even by denying the existence of luck, both good and bad, you somehow still managed to evoke it. But why is luck such a powerful idea? Why do we still refer to things as being good or bad luck, or events as lucky, even though most of us would take Stu's line and say that luck wasn't real? They think that luck, it's, it's really the illusion of control. We have this illusion of control just naturally. We believe that we are going to have greater control over the events of our own lives than we ever possibly could have. And even though in our own past experience we have been wrong, we still believe it's going to be true in the future. People are willing to pay around about four times more for a lottery ticket if they can pick their own numbers because what they're buying, in essence, is the illusion of control that their lucky numbers right, are going to have some impact on whether or not they're going to win. of Wittgensteinian wisdom there. Like the last Wittgenstein quote we heard, this seemingly direct statement, that either an event occurs or it does not, has another implication. Wittgenstein says that there is no middle way, but just before that he says that propositions can be probable or improbable, which if you think about it seems to contradict the second statement about events. Probability says that an event might occur or that it might not, and that there is a certain chance of things going either way. Probability is the middle way that Wittgenstein says events can't have. What Wittgenstein seems to be getting at is the vast chasm between the way we understand the world, through our senses, through language, through science and through probability, and the way the world really is. The key thing to remember is that this chasm will never be bridged, and simultaneously that we will never stop trying to bridge it. The problem with trying to make sense of unlikely events is that you constantly come up against the limitations of trying to describe the world using our limited language. But at the same time, unlikely events end up shaping the way people describe their world. It's a kind of feedback loop. Here's Jenny talking about how the violent attacks she experienced has influenced the music she makes. The sort of music I write and the stories that I write and the 
performances I make are kind of about what I would call circumstance, maybe, which I think is like a unfaithful person's way of talking about destiny. <laughs> I'm still quite obsessed by the kind of banality of circumstance or the banality of coincidence, maybe. Like that I just can't quite seem to keep the meaning inflated. And this is what I think you need for a kind of understanding or a belief in destiny is you need to like keep the balloon inflated. Maybe I'm distrustful of the kind of like specialness that coincidence or the idea of destiny or fate or something attributes to a person. It sort of gives you permission to think that <laughs> your circumstances are more special than other people's, which I kind of think maybe I find more meaning in like all of our circumstances being as unspecial as each other's. It sort of makes me feel a bit more calm about the whole existence thing. There's also some sort of weird responsibility that comes with unique experiences or like, oh man, like like acting at the right time because the stars were aligned and that is just so, too much pressure to live under. I think this messy situation that Jenny describes is exactly what I'm trying to get at with the use of the word unluck. That we can somehow understand that an unlikely event is neither lucky nor unlucky and yet at the same time realise that it has affected the way we think simply because it was unlikely. We attribute the event meaning, and yet can also know that it has no meaning. We connect up all the events in our life and call it destiny, but also refuse the responsibility of that destiny. I asked Stu about when he started to connect all the different things that had happened to him. His mum's death, the lightning strike, the plane crash, the broken bones. I think it's when other people started to say, so how many bones have you broken? <laughs> how, many, uh, you know, how many times have you done this? So have you started to think about you know, like, why these things happen? And I'm like, no, no, not really. If you know a way of life and you don't really contemplate the alternatives, you know, because that's just, it's just the, way you, it's, it's the way you live. In terms of bad luck and, and good luck, I don't know. Philosophically, I, 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 I just put it down to um, not really good luck or bad luck. I don't know what you call it. I don't know what you call it. Um, if it was just all me, then I'd start to think, you should just really take care of yourself a bit more. You know, you should really try and look when you do this or do that. Open your eyes more or don't get drunk or, you know, I don't know, whatever. But there's a series of things that don't happen all the time, you know. Not, not a lot of people have lost a parent when, they, when they're young, and that's the first major thing. But some people have. It's not that big a deal, you know. I don't really... It's not that I've dealt with it or I'm over it or anything like that. It's just uh, things happen. Shit happens, you know. <laughs> You could sit there and contemplate it and, you know, pick over it for the rest of your life, but then um, there's no fun in that. I mean, <laughs> who would want to do that? Stu, don't think too hard about those things. Stu, don't think too hard about them things. Stu, don't think too hard about those things. Stu, don't think too hard about them things. Stu, don't think too hard about them Wittgenstein's right. Mystical things are mystical because they mystify us. Or in other words, the fact that unlikely events are never really explainable is what makes them seem so important and meaningful. 
That is the essence of unluck. Any attempt to make sense of these events is doomed, and yet we can't stop ourselves trying to make sense of them. And this is what allows them to have real meaning in our lives. Not just as weird random events, but as experiences we draw on for strength, like Helen spoke about, or as an induction into the different scales in which humans operate, like Jenny, or like Will, we could use them as a way of understanding the myriad of unknown possibilities to which we have access. Or maybe, like Stu, we could just use unluck as a way of rolling with the punches and going with the flow. That's my view anyway. Just because we can't explain something within the limitations of our language doesn't mean we won't try. But I guess I'd better leave the last word to Wittgenstein, and he took a pretty hard line on these things.